This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Players Unite sports business podcast, The Sportacast. I thought you go, yes, the players of the world. It's not just, you know, the players, the players of the world. So uh, let me explain, Evan. I spent my morning over at the New York City headquarters of the NBPA, the National Basketball Players Association. They hosted, I don't even know how many, but a number of players associations from around the world, different, whether it's rugby, um, whether it's you know a cricket, just uh, players associations from all over the world, and our, our own uh, Asla Pelit and Eric Jackson serving as moderators. So Eric kicked things off with I love a fascinating panel with the executive directors of the major U.S. players associations. It's one of those. It's almost as rare when you know when all four commissioners get together, like they do something at the Paley Center and. You know, that doesn't happen all that often. But uh, Tamika Tremaglio of the NBPA, the hostess, uh, Tony Clark of MLBPA, Demar Smith, NFLPA, and Don Fear of the NHLPA. They all sat on stage for an hour plus whatever it was, discussion, uh, wide-ranging. Some of it was collective bargaining, but it really centered on the collective rights, like how valuable name, image, likeness, data. And this this really fascinated me. They were talking about monetizing NIL data. And then one of them said, well, or actually it was one of the hosts from Australia who said, well, maybe even performance can be monetized, which I didn't really know what they were getting at, but mm. I'm like, I'm really interested in this. So I, I, it was so wide ranging, but to, it, I'm going to try and like distill it. Some of the takeaways is, all four of the union chiefs view the relationship with the leagues as you want to throw in a you want to throw in a few adjectives you want to take some guesses C- contentious it as, <laughs> would be my guess well yeah I, I mean they you know some of them even said war you, you, yeah. you know that you, you can't lose a battle like this the notion that we're in this together we're partners we're no 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 this is a battle of decimal points because I wrote this down on my phone. So let me get to my little notes section here on the iPhone. Um, Demora Smith said a 0.5% change in revenue in player share in their deal. 0.5% player share is $700 million. And you, you know, extrapolate that over the NFL, which has long, you know, long term deals. 
you're talking, you can be talking three, four billion dollars of revenue based on that half a percent share. So all of them agreed. What is this about? <laughs> this is about, and this is this is collective bargaining. This is also about how do we create strength, united strength? Because at the end of the day, they all said this is about perceived, doesn't even have to be real. This is about perceived strength. That's what that's the what they're they're trying to put forth to the owners that this this perceived strength and when you hear criticism of some of the unions oh the league got whatever they wanted they got this and I'm not going to be specific as to which one we we've, we've all heard it it was very interesting to hear Don Fear now of course Don came from Marvin Miller you know he like went to Michael Weiner of course Tony Clark after that but if you consider strongest baseball unions I think it is widely held that the MLBPA has the strongest, you know, and that yeah. has been just, you know, Marvin Miller on down, and, and particularly under Don Fear, where they lost a World Series and the players stuck together. And it was Don Fear who said that if you do not have 95% agreement going into labor talks, you got nothing. Like the owners aren't going to fall for that. They know the key word always is leverage, 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 perceived leverage, power and leverage. And you know you, you got to wonder. You, you have always you know a, a certain percentage of people who are don't participate in meetings, don't really get up to snuff. And you know Tony Clark was like, we represent them too. You know they're they're members. You just wish they'd shut up <laughs> because they just make things more difficult. So I mean that that was sort of the the tone and tenor. And it's but where are we going in the collective rights? And Demora Smith, it was very interesting to me. Because he was criticized also for making the you know the long term deal, right? They, oh, it's so long and everything. But he was like, he would not have done one team partners. Uh, he would not have done tops had the labor deal been shorter. Because in the final two years of the deal, you need to be liquid. You know, so you don't think about the investment strategy. This is not something man on the street thinks about. What's the investment strategy of the players associations? Uh, depending on where collective bargaining stands. So it would enable him to do these things because they had long-term. And you, you do that, of course, because if you're getting a good percentage of a huge pie, he looked at the TV deals and said, these numbers are going to keep going up. He's like, I don't care what we earn on one team or on commercial rights. The odds are, and going back to that 0.5% being $700 million, the odds are we're not going to make three, $4 billion. Like we'll sign up long-term because I know where those media deals are going. So, I mean, you can imagine just where where the conversations were. They were bouncing all over the place in terms of collective rights and IP. And these unions are taking the group licensing rights in-house. So it used to be the, the leagues cut them a check. Now they have to deal with the leagues and the unions if you want to use a player's name, image, and likeness. So it's just a fascinating discussion. I'm just curious uh, what you, if you have any questions, I'm just curious if you're like, well, what, what about this? What about this? And I can try and fill in the gaps as to what they said and what they talked about. Yeah, I have, I have a few things. One, I, I think that the, 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 the relationship between players and, and, and leagues, I would say is getting more contentious around a lot of these things, just because there's so much more that leagues are trying to really monetize now, right? There, there, there's sports betting, there's more video games, there's way more licensing. Trading cards have been around for a while, but outside of that, I think maybe 15 or 20 years ago, if you're, even you go back a little a little bit further to to the the the, the strike in baseball in, in the 90s, 
so much of the things right now that players feel like is their right to monetize were not things that were really being used business-wise, levers being pulled at the league lever, league level back then. So I think as we get deeper and deeper into Web3 and NFTs and new tech and all this stuff where players feel like their licensing is directly involved and their data and their, <laughs> their heart rate, whatever it all is, um, there's just going to be more and more of these conversations. One question I do have for you, Scott, because you were there and you mentioned these are players unions from around the world. Am I correct in thinking that that, that around the world, a lot of these union, these unions, players associations are looking at the structure here in the U.S. and thinking that the, the American League's players associations are a lot further ahead of where they are in terms of thinking about a lot of these things, creating things like one team, which was a partnership uh, in, in part between the NFLPA and the MLBPA and, and Redbird Capital originally. It seems like the, I would think, and maybe I'm totally off base on this, that there's just a lot more organization union-wise in American professional sports than you get in a lot of other professional sports around the world. We've talked about tennis on this show. We had Ahmad Nassar on recently. Ahmad was there. Ahmad there's, was in attendance. And, and, and there's been essentially no real player tennis players association movement uh, up until really the last couple years. So yeah, I, I would imagine that there's a lot of people taking notes about what's happening in the U S and thinking about how in other international sports that can be applied. All right. So let me answer uh, you monosyllabically. Is that okay? And it isn't often that I'm a man of few words in monosyllabic. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to answer your question like this. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you are 100% correct, which is why Tony Clark said, we think we're just scratching the surface at one team. We see this as crossing borders, that there is the collective power. Again, there's that, that leverage and power. There's the collective power of athletes globally that can act in concert. It doesn't have to be one union versus one league. What can the players do? And I'm, here, here's a couple of things I want to read to you, Evan. And you mentioned very astutely the technology. You mentioned tech and all the things that the players are getting into. Don Fear. Quote, does the tech change the power dynamic? Question mark. But then there's an ellipse saying, of course it does. Of course it changes the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, let me hear what some of, some of my other... here. I love this. Tony Clark's quote. And I think... I, you tell me what percentage of the way you think we are towards Tony Clark's quote becoming or being a reality. Where do you think we are right now and how quickly do you think we're going to change? Ready? This is Tony's message to Major League Baseball players. And I think more broadly, of course, he's speaking about athletes in general um, across the globe. Ready? This is this. And he said this for emphasis five times. Stop thinking like the hired help. Hmm. What is the mentality of athletes? Do the, are they content with paychecks? Are they content with a group license check? Stop thinking like the hired help. When you sit across from the owners in collective bargaining, understand that you don't become a billionaire with short-term thinking. They're talking about building generational wealth. That's what, these, that's what these unions are talking about. How do we create? Of course, it's always going to be the principle. It's always going to be collective bargaining, but it's not an end or. It's, it's, it's combined. You know, what do we do? How do we generate real wealth? And when you're looking at something like... Oh, here, here was another one, Demora Smith. He asked, and this was, by the way, an audience of players associations from around the world. I'm not sure if people just, you know, when someone asks a question in a big forum, if you just don't want to raise your hand or if people didn't know the answer. I know you do, but he posed the question sort of to the crowd, who owns tops? 
who owns tops? Yeah. And there's, there's sort of this silence looking around. You know, I'm in the back going, well, I know who owns tops. Does, <laughs> does everybody here know who? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, it's fanatics yeah. and the players. Historically, fanatics would have had its deal, its partnership with the leagues. Now, when you're talking about perceived power, there's an ownership stake, there's an equity component for the players as business partners with Fanatics. It's not a, a, a pick your either or. It's the league has a business relationship and an equity stake in the company. So do the players. And, and that, by the way, as implied by every single uh, executive director on the stage, that makes things much more difficult for leagues when it comes to collective bargaining, that these players have this real and perceived power, that they are ownership stakes they are owners and, and and equity participants in the ecosystem that once belonged solely to the leagues yeah and i think the question is is trading cards the the model of the future where as you said the the, the tops of the world now owned by fanatics need partnerships with both the leagues and the pas to really do that product properly or are the leagues going to be able to keep pushing other versions of, of and not not trading cards, but other kind of new tech industries where players actually don't need to be involved. And that's the fight, right? And the data fight, I think, is the most interesting one to me because yeah, in a lot of ways- that belongs to the players only. It, 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 yeah, do I need a league mark if I'm using LeBron James? Right. Sure, but but for sports betting, for example, there's all this prop betting that you can do on player individual performance and yep. none of the sports books are paying- players associations for official data, they're paying the leagues for official data, right? So, so that that's an area where, unlike trading cards, the business has risen in a way where the league is the main touch point, not the players association. I would be fascinated if in the future th th there were more player props and in addition to Sport Radar paying the NHL for, for official data, it also had to pay the NHLPA for official data. Uh, and maybe there's an opportunity there for the players to be to be doing things themselves that create those official data streams that people might want to bet on. But again, you have on one end trading cards, which the unions can easily point to, as you said, and, and point to a healthy model that shows their their import in it. And then on the other end, you have sports betting, which seems to be developing in a totally different way. Um, yeah, I think those are two kind of dichotomies there, Scott, that I that I think are particularly interesting. Uh, to, to to go back to your point about you know how, how far we are, are along on on the idea of not thinking like hired help, I think it totally depends on on the league, right? That there are players unions and also collective groups of star athletes that I think we would say have a lot of power, and others that I say I would say have less power. I keep thinking in this conversation back to another one team partners partner, the U.S. Women's National Team. Think of how much they've accomplished in the past four or five years. On, on gender pay, on uh, equity in travel, equity in accommodations, equity in, in the type of fields that they play on, largely because the, the women that play on the U.S. national team are so much of a bigger brand from, 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 a, from a social cachet standpoint than, than, than U.S. soccer is. Uh, so, so they leverage their stardom and their success on the field in a really palpable way. I think there's a model there for a lot of, a lot of sports and a lot of national teams, again, it just depends on where the imbalance is or how much the imbalance is between the popularity of the teams in the leagues and then the popularities of individual players. One of our favorite sports anecdotes was, and you tell me, I always forget, was it Christine Lilly who gave us the anecdote when Lilly, she yeah. traveled with the, yeah, with the U.S. national team and all you had to, to do to know uh, about the finances of the U.S. women's national team was sort of 
board the plane and look back and they all wore red sweatshirts. So it was nothing but a line of middle seats on the plane. That <laughs> yeah. wasn't even a charter, you know, fly, fly, flying um, commercially. But the cheapest seat they could, that they could, U.S. soccer could get would be the middle seat. So the players would be lined up directly back on uh, one line of red sweatshirts in the middle seat. I love that. But it also came to mind when I'm sitting there and listening. And I, and I get it. But as someone who has covered labor talks way going back to the 1980, no, wait, was it? What was my first lockout? 19, I don't remember, 1990, whatever it was. One of the first NBA lockouts. I can't remember the year. Um, I remember every time Michael Jordan would show up to the bargaining talks, there would be hmm. a different tenor. Like, the, you know, the owners would snap to attention because Michael was in the room. And one of the anecdotes that came out of that is Michael one time screaming at, well, you know, he didn't, he, but he, he certainly told a Poland the uh, former owner of the Washington Wizards. like It was something to the effect of, if you can't make money, sell your team, old man. Like That was yeah. the message from Michael. If you can't make money, sell your team. And now, interestingly enough, Michael, as owner of the Charlotte franchise, is one of the more hawkish owners in the NBA, sitting on the other side of the table being like, whoa, 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 we need cost control. We need mechanisms to keep salaries down. And I wonder, because I'm sitting here in our office here, Evan, and I'm looking at a picture of LeBron James. Yeah. And it's only a few days past LeBron sending a message to Adam Silver. Hey, if you put a team in Las Vegas, I'd like to be a part of that. Right? So, you know, who wins out here? What is the principle? What's bouncing around in LeBron's head? Is it, well, you know, I got to really show uh, some solidarity with my union brothers here. If you know, we have negotiations going on right now with the NBA for a new labor deal, or is it LeBron in top, top of the pyramid guy looking ahead going, oh, I want to be an owner in this league. And you know, I, I want to curry favor with the owners. And I'm thinking already like a billionaire businessman. I want to see if that's my, if that's my goal, what are the mechanisms that I need to put in place now so that I get a better deal on the ownership side? It's, it's fascinating to me. Hearing you say that made me think of an event we did, I believe it was last year, may have been two years ago with Michelle Roberts, the former head of the NBPA, when she was talking about the idea of maybe NBA players as a collective having some kind of equity or stake in the NBA and its franchises. That's obviously different than what LeBron is talking about, about himself as a very well, wealthy investor, maybe getting involved. How about in NBA Arctos? NBA. <laughs> Arctos. MVP Arctos. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that that is also a really interesting dynamic here. And, and I think that it is a very long shot that anytime in the near future, any of the PAs have any kind of equity structure. But I do certainly understand the idea that they are just sharing in the revenue, but not necessarily sharing in the valuation upside, which for a lot of teams, as you know, Scott, a lot of teams aren't making money, despite what Michael Jordan said to Abe Poland so long ago. Outside of the NFL, there are so many big professional sports franchises that are losing money every year. The value is captured really in the appreciation, the rapid appreciation of these franchises. And the players are not directly taking part in, in that part of the economy. Yeah, and and the accounting and sort of the you could write things that we talked about this, uh, how you can uh, use different assets like real estate for certain tax breaks um, and certain certain sale maneuvers. Um, so, I mean, there are multiple advantages to owning an NBA or a, a professional sports 100%. franchise. But I also also fascinating 
Uh, and this is a, happening across all unions. So Tamika Tremeglio of the NBPA was talking about the All-Star Game last year where they held a business dinner. You know, and they're trying, they're really trying to change that mindset of what Tony Clark said. Don't think of yourself as the hired help. Think, think generational wealth. Think, oh, think about your value. How can you generate more? What, what, where is that perceived leverage? How do you personally, we as the collective, gain perceived leverage? And one of the ways is, as, as I told you, I'm, I go down the elevator because uh, I had to come and do this. And the elevator door opens, and who's standing there ready to get in? I told you, so you can you know you can sound really smart as if you really guessed it. <laughs> I am guessing this but is Michael Rubin of Fanatics. There's Michael Rubin, right? <laughs> you know, founder of Fanatics, uh, to come and address these players' associations. You know, Michael's not Michael's no fool. He understands that hey, maybe there's a global world out there where Fanatics should be doing business with you know rugby and cricket and others, and how can we benefit? Right? Michael's no fool. If he's going to invest his time, he wants to see what's the ROI here. Maybe, maybe there is some. Just the fact that the the players' associations, and again, I I don't I still don't know the percentage. I'm not sure where we are. I we're in a bit of an echo chamber. Like we know the athletes, we hear about this all the time. Um, and I don't know if it's agent driven or business manager driven, but I mean, I really mean the psyche of the athlete understanding that the platform and, and the popularity and really good money, what it sets them up to accomplish, that there's more to do. Understanding there's great difference bet- between being a rich athlete and a wealthy owner, somebody who has billions of dollars and the ability to own these franchises. There's a huge chasm, a wide divide between the two. Did, did golf come up at all in, in this in, today when you were there? Because no. I, I wonder the, what's happening in, in professional golf right now is obviously different from, from, from this conversation in that it's, it's being partially disrupted by a very, very deep-pocketed new league. But by the same t- token, I would also argue that a lot of what's happening in professional golf right now is players who are standing up for their worth and, and making decisions based on the leverage that they think they have, right? And, and we have seen that the PGA Tour brand alone was not enough to keep some of the best golfers in the world playing on the PGA Tour uh, full-time. And we have no idea yet how this is all going to shake out, how much the PGA Tour's business is going to be effective, where live golf is and its golfers are in, in three or four years. But there have been a lot of changes made to the PGA Tour's business just in the past six months in terms of guaranteed payout, helping to comp and, players and for the their travel. Yeah. If I'm an executive director of one of the unions, I can say, no, they don't have sort of a collective bargaining entity, but Why? Be not only because of a perceived power of the players, a real power of the players and that saying, they yeah. now have an option. Yes, they can go somewhere else. And it's amazing how quickly the changes came from the PGA Tour once that occurred. And we talk about it all the time when there are franchise sales. More bidders, more money, right? One of the most yeah. basic principles. More bidders, more money. Here you had another entity, gave me an option. Somebody had to react. There was an action and here's the immediate reaction. Who, you, you're a smart guy, went to Princeton. Whose law of what is that? <laughs> Newton's law of what? Oh gosh, I don't have no idea. Second law of motion. All right, well, anyway, Third I, law of it's, motion? it's a Newton law of something. <laughs> no, no, an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted Equal upon by an outside force. Thank you very you much. Yeah. <laughs> I was I, I was terrible in physics. Not, in physics yeah, by I was going to say not, not a uh, science guy over here. Once we got to <laughs> muzzle velocity, I blew it. I knew nothing. All right. Well, I mean, I know there were a couple other things you wanted to talk about. We've gone kind of long on this, but so pick one. 
of the other things you wanted to talk about, and we'll do that too. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll go with a, a kind of a fun one, and, and one that I think probably surprised you as well. You, you, some tweets of yours and some tweets of Michael McCann's ended up in some publications this week. Oh. Um, but th- there were, were two <laughs> yeah. incidences uh, in the NFL over the past week um, that I that I want to tie together. They're not directly tied together, but but they are kind of interesting from a business and a legal standpoint. Um, last Sunday, Rams linebacker Bobby Wagner. Uh, ended up tackling a protester, a streaker who had run onto the field, a clothed streaker who had run onto the field. A really big hit that the, the person ended up being concussed and went to the police and filed a police report against the player. Again, this is a this is a fan who ran onto the field with a flare and was tackled by a by an NFL linebacker. Ended up concussed and filed a police report. And then on Monday night, Raiders wide receiver Devontae Adams was leaving the field after the team had lost essentially walked into a cameraman, I believe, pushed him to the ground and kept walking. That cameraman also filed a police report. Devontae Adams on on Wednesday, I believe, was charged with misdemeanor assault. There's a lot of people wondering if a civil suit is coming. Again, I understand there's a difference between a, a working photographer who's supposed to be on the sidelines and a fan who is very much not supposed to be on the field being hit by players. Uh, but both of these things I, I would kind of tie together in that it's it, it's players who are you know, being physical on when they're not supposed to be with, with, with civilians uh, on the field of play to a degree. Uh, and I'm really interested to see what the what the ramifications are here legally. I think there's an easy argument for how silly it is that a fan who takes a flare onto the field and is running towards NFL players then has a legal claim when when, when he or she gets tackled and then and then is concussed. Um, but on the other side, I, I do think that players have to be really careful in these situations about what they're wearing helmets wise, what they're doing and, and, and what the potential ramifications are for them legally. So many things I want to like, I want to jump in here. Yeah. All right. But there's a reason why uh, you, if you're going out to, you know, whatever dinner, nightclub, whatever, you know, if you're going to have a few beverages, you don't drive, have somebody <laughs> drive you. So you don't, you know, you mitigate risk. You're not going to go out and drive drunk and you don't have to do that. Um, maybe hire a bodyguard if you're a, a big time celebrity, right? So you don't have to carry the gun. So if the bodyguard shoots and kills somebody, more of a headache for the bodyguard. Yes, you, <laughs> but you didn't do it. So, you know, whatever. So I just sort of watched this and I tweeted very, it was funny. I even tweeted to McCann because uh, again, anything legal, I go to Mike McCann. I'm like, Mike, don't you just see the day where one of these athletes is going to seriously hurt? And I even said knuckleheads. Right, in no way, shape, or form, and I laugh at the people who like. There's no civil discourse. It's amazing. I totally understand these people should not be on the field. I I agree. I get it. Given that, okay. But what we have here is a situation. Somebody is on the field. Now, it's not hard to ascertain. I don't think. I mean, you can make the argument. Oh, they don't know. They're at risk. There's someone's running at them. Are they? carrying a gun? Are they carrying a knife? Do they have a baseball bat in their hands? Or does this appear to be some intoxicated knucklehead who ripped off his shirt or, you know, running around with a flare being a moron, right? You have a choice to make. You see security is chasing after them and they can't quite catch them. But if I'm a professional athlete, I am not a security guard. If I was the agent for these athletes, I would say fella or... Or, you know, if it's a female uh, athlete, do me a favor. Do not interject yourself into this situation. One of these football players at six foot five 
310 pounds, clocking some dude who's like, yes, I got it. Trespassing, all that stuff. I got it. But this guy suffers a serious injury. Believe me, your life is worse off. Yeah. I know that person shouldn't have been there, shouldn't have done it. But there is zero need for you to interject and to be the person who tackles this guy. Why? What For what? What do you get out of it as the athlete? You come on, let's be let's be real. No athlete out there said I'm doing this to stop a threatening situation. Let's is be that real. true? I'm not saying I mean, one couldn't present itself. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, yes. that's yes, the, that's this the argument more, the, to me. Yes, this knucklehead running on the field. Now, I, I basketball. I, you know, I you know somebody runs out real fast on the court. You got a quick decision. You can put exactly. I, I get it. Yeah, I, I, I do. You don't know I what this totally, guy's golfer. And, somebody runs out. And you know more than I am. Sports fans are crazy, right? That there are there are I, I people it. that are like passionate I said. way beyond how they should be about sports. Uh, and the NBA is a, is a good example because this comes up the most just because of proximity of player and fans yes. in the NBA. And the NBA has really had to, in, in a lot of ways, d- develop a plan and approach for the interaction, both physical and verbal between fans and players. I don't know if you've, you saw this, Scott, that people were tweeting about it. I don't know all the details, but the NBA is handing out cards now to people who are sitting yes, warnings court, to fans. courtside yeah, warnings to fans. about yeah. the, their, their behavior, I, I think primarily from, from a verbal abuse standpoint uh, t- towards players. I, I'm sure it's also physical. But yeah, this made me think a little bit about about those lawsuits where someone burgles a house and then falls into the pool because there's no fence around the pool. Yes, and then yes ends you didn't up have with, a fence. <laughs> exactly. Listen, Eben, I, I, I yeah. get it. But if you can crawl into the mind of the athletes that do this. Yeah. Again, I I don't know this 100%. I'm trying to crawl into the mind. But in my crawling here, I'm saying that the examples that we saw, at least in the NFL recently, that player with 100% certainty, my guess, did not understood that there was no real threat to his safety, his teammate's safety. That person wanted a free shot at a knucklehead yeah. and took it. And I'm just saying that down the line, somebody is going to hurt one of these fans, seriously hurt one of these fans. And as you just said, you may be breaking into somebody's backyard or whatever and fall in the pool. But guess what? Your life will be worse from where for having taken that action. That That is all I tried to say. Yeah. And then, boom, it came like the next day. People were writing about it. And then the next day, you know, the, the, we, we found out that they, they filed a lawsuit <laughs> you know, for being hurt or whatever it was. I'm like, here we go. Just stay out of it. If you can, just stay out of it. And, and as these things progress, if they become bigger legal things, I'm sure Michael McCann will write about more about it uh, over at Sportico. Uh, but but yeah, but both Devontae Adams and Bobby Wagner, two, two slightly different situations, but both kind of top of mind to me right now in the NFL. Yeah, one was, you know, cameraman doing his job and just seemed like a frustrated athlete, lost the game and, you know. Yep. And then, by the way, took to Twitter to say sorry if you if you've see this or you know whatever i oops realized that uh oh this could be problematic for me because exactly. i for no reason shoved the guy down <laughs> but yeah. anyway he is evan novi williams on the twitter at novi underscore williams i am scott soshnick on the twitter at soshnick our producer is matt whitehurst our digital media editor is core Veltman. she loves when i remind you that the show can be found at sportacast which is the hub of what will soon become the sportico media network Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.